Everybody doing well? Yes, so good to see you guys. I told the first service, y'all can all applaud yourselves because you're like the real dedicated Christians, okay? With Labor Day weekend, and then I know a late game last night. Maybe some of y'all attend the earlier service. You're like, not today, okay? I know some people came back late, and uh, that's all I'm going to say about the game, okay? That's all I'm going to say. I'm a Tennessee fan, so I could care less, but um, Tennessee, I'm just glad they won on Thursday, all right? They beat last year's last place team. Like, they were like ranked 128. Yeah, give it up for Tennessee. Okay, good. All right, now, y'all can sing Rocky Top later. But, uh, no, but it's good. Uh, College uh, football is here, and the fall weather is here. I know it's going to get a little warm this week, but, man, it's so awesome. So thankful that you are here. Hope that you have great plans to rest and just be with family or friends tonight and tomorrow and all that good stuff. We're continuing. Uh, We're in week three of our series called The Crown, where we are walking through this life of this guy named David, really an influential character, a pivotal character um, in all of Scripture. Really, you have like, you know, God, Jesus, and then there's like David, all right? Uh, He's up there in the top five, and uh, we've been just walking through this, and as we continue this, we kind of get to this crossroads section of his life this morning, and it had me thinking uh, and I'm just going to speak personally for a second, and maybe you can kind of uh, understand with me. But I think one of the hardest things to do in life, um, and it's probably because of the culture and what's been created in our culture, is I hate waiting. I just hate waiting. I become impatient. You know, like I remember like the first person's like, patience is a virtue. And I'm like, okay, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Okay. But it's hard for me to wait. And maybe it's because I have ADHD or something. I, I don't know. But I can't stand waiting. It's just one of those things like, okay, for those of you who have kids, uh, I posted about this the first day of school. Teachers, you know what I'm talking about. But I can't stand a wait in the car line. Like the car line at school brings out the most sinful person of me, all right? It just does. Like, I just don't get it. And for some reason, this is just how it works. When you're in car line and it's my turn, you know, me and luckily Sloan usually takes uh, Noah, our youngest, to school on her way to work. And we're part of this carpool thing, so my, my sanity is balanced. But I hate, for some reason, every time I'm like in a hurry and I do carpool, I come up and I'm like, all right, let's go, let's go. And you're kind of rolling in. And I always get behind like the mom or dad that I feel like they have to like pass an act of Congress to get their kid out of their car. It's like they're unpacking for vacation, right? It's like the mom gets out, she opens the trunk, here's the backpack. Oh, I forgot, you know, I have to go over here and get the lunch box. And I got to, uh, oh, sweetie's having a problem getting his five-point harness off, you know. And so we got to unharness him and then he gets out and then it's clinging to the leg. It's like, oh, I love you. <laughs> okay, still clinging. Okay. Then the teacher's like, come on over. I'm like, will you move your car? I have a meeting, all right? Now, listen, I love kids, and I love teachers, and I love school, but it's just one of those things. You, are you with me? Okay, I'm just human, all right? Don't judge me, all right? And so I just, the, the waiting, it's just kind of like, come on. Now, it's balanced out a little bit with the start of school, but that first week, man, it was like hell on earth. Let's just be honest. Tornado warnings, I was like, we're all going to die. Jesus is coming back, okay? But, um, but I, I hate waiting in that. Now, I'm a foodie. And I know, okay, I know, you're going to wait at a restaurant. I'm not saying that you, like, order and it's going to be right there. But I hate, like, when they sit you, like, when they sit you down 
And it's like, where's the waiter or waitress? Like, is anybody going to come get our drinks? I mean, throw me a roll or something. Like, where are you? Like, are you, like, what, what are you doing? And then I feel like oftentimes that's like the precursor because, like, they bring you your rolls. And they're like, are they going to take our order? Like, we're ready. Then they finally take your order. It's like, okay, where's our food? You got to wait for your food. And then you got to wait for your check. I'm like, dude, this guy or this girl, they're like taking a smoke break like every five seconds. And if you ever worked in a restaurant industry, you know what I'm talking about, okay? Maybe it's a vape break now. I don't know what they do now, but it's, it's legit. And I'm like, come on, I'm starving right now. I hate waiting. Our oldest, he had some allergy stuff last week, and I think I told you this. Took him to the pediatrician just to be safe, get a COVID test. They're like, yeah, I call when I get there. They're like, you need to wait in your car. We'll get, we'll get to you as soon as possible. We're running a little behind. Three hours later, okay, I'm like, okay, you can come in now. I'm like, three hours? Like, who wants to wait, right? Waiting is so hard. Now, okay, now let's shift gears. This is a hard shift. Now, let's think about things that are actually really important when it comes to waiting. Less comical, more serious. Man, it's hard to wait on those lab results, to find out if you have cancer or not. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to wait when you interviewed for a job and you're just praying you got it because you desperately need this for your family. Not just because it might be your dream job, but I'm just saying your job is miserable for your sanity, for the sake of your kids and your family. You need this new job and you're just waiting to see if you got it. You know, maybe you're waiting on a loved one to recover from an illness and you're just praying that this medicine that, that's been prescribed is that medicine. Waiting can be difficult. And as you see on the screen, waiting is difficult because we do not know the outcome. I mean, it's in that land in between kind of the uncertainty, the unknown. I don't know what is next. And it, it tests our faith, doesn't it? It's kind of, we're just kind of like, okay, I'm tired of waiting. I want to do something. If you're like me, it's like in the waiting, you kind of feel like, okay, I'm just kind of waiting. Like I should be doing something, right? Like I need to preoccupy myself. And I feel like we just live in a culture that has just ingrained that in us. Like I said this a few weeks ago, it's, we live in a fast food culture, you know, click it and buy it on Amazon. And it's there, you know, with Prime quickly. Uh, rapid COVID test, everything curbside pickup. You know, some of y'all are drinking Starbucks. You order on the app. You just walk in, get it, and leave, all right? I told somebody, I'm not promoting this. Just walk in. There's all kind of drinks there. Just take one, all right? Um, who cares what you ordered? All right, no, just kidding, all right? Uh, you know, like my pastor said, no, I'm not saying that, all right? But we just live in a, hey, you, you, you put it on, you order it now, let's do this. And in the meantime, Oftentimes, we treat God and our relationship with God that way. God, you need to do it right now. And we've lost this sense of really waiting on God's timing. And I know that's like a big, that's a, that's a big thing to grasp. And I'm not saying I've even grasped it. But for us to say, you know what? God's timing is perfect. We know that. We have even said that. You might even have a plaque in your house that says something about it. But in life, practically speaking, that's easier said than done. And we get to this moment of David, who is at this crossroads. He has been waiting. Now, let me kind of bring you up to speed. If you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, I always like to do this. I think it's good for me, but it just kind of brings it into real life perspective. 
Now, we have David. He's this teenage shepherd boy. And in Israel, there was no king. They lose this battle to their arch nemesis, the Philistines. The Israelites are like, they're just mad about it. And, and so they go to the prophet Samuel, who at the time was kind of the guy in charge. And they were never intended to have a king, but the people are, want to be like everybody else. They feel like they lost this battle because they don't have this strong king figure. So they go to Samuel and they're like, find us a king. We want a king. So Samuel, in his best judgment, picks this guy named Saul, first king of Israel. Saul had some experience fighting battles. Scripture says he was the tallest guy in all the population of Israel. So like, you're, you're the man. And we see that God anointed uh, Saul. And so first it kind of worked out. Everything was going good. But then really his selfishness, we see that there comes a moment where God instructed Saul to do something. And Saul blatantly in 1 Samuel 13 totally disregarded what God was saying. And so because of that, God removed his hand off of Saul and was going to appoint another king. So while Physically speaking, Saul was still the king of Israel. Behind the scenes, God was preparing and going to anoint a new king. So he comes to Samuel, the prophet, and says, hey, we're going to pick a new king. I'm going to pick a new king, and I want you to go to this place. So he goes to this guy. His name is Jesse. He has eight sons. And it's really kind of like this ancient Cinderella story where Samuel, the prophet, shows up with like, not really a glass slipper, but it's like, all right, let's see all you meathead brothers if your fat foot fits in this thing. And so he goes through these brothers, and they're like, maybe it's this one, maybe it's this one, maybe it's this one. And there's, there's eight total brothers, but the first seven, Samuel says, none of them are going to be king. He's like, don't you have eight sons? And Jesse says, yeah, we, our youngest son, David, he's a shepherd. He's really a loser, okay? Like, he's nobody. He, he's, he's just a shepherd boy, and I love it. Um, Samuel says, well, I need to see him. We're not leaving until we see him. David comes in in his little, you know, teenage puny self. And God speaks to the prophet Samuel and says, this is it. This is him. And can you imagine his brothers? Like David's brothers are like, this dude? Like, no way, man. Like we, like he's like the fat kid in dodgeball. Like he's like the last kid to get picked for anything. He's going to be king. There's no way. And right there, the prophet anoints David, and I love it. We see that then David just returns back to the field. I mean, he's 14 or 15. He's going to be a shepherd. And roughly 18 months to two years later, we saw this last week, the Philistines and the Israelites are at it again in battle. They're on um, either side of this mountain, and the valley is in between them. And the Philistines have this nine-and-a-half-foot giant, you might have heard of him, named Goliath, who comes out and is just defying God and saying, We're gonna, I'm going to kill all of you guys. And if you can find someone to kill me, I will be your servants. But if I kill you, you're going to be our servants. And they're all afraid. And the Israelites are looking to Saul as their king to be a leader, but he is a pansy and he's hiding in the tent, okay? And so then David is back home, 14, 15, 16 maybe. He's at home taking care of the sheep. His dad, Jesse, says, hey, your brothers are fighting the battle. What? They're probably hungry. Yeah, they probably needed some, some home-cooked meal. They probably need some chick, you know, chicken pot pie or something. I don't know, something hearty. So why don't you take it to him? David's like, okay. So he goes, takes some food, some bread, some grain, drops it off. He's like, what's going on here? Goes and meets his brothers. Goliath comes out, 
breathes these death threats. And David's like, who does this joker think he is defying God? He's like, I'll take this guy. And they're like, yeah, right. You're not taking him. He goes back and tells Saul, I'm going to kill him. You know, I've killed bear, a bear. I've killed a lion protecting my sheep. I'm going to kill this dude. He's going to be just like him. So he goes out. He kills Goliath. I mean, now think about this. They return back to Judah. And this puny shepherd boy is now a hero. So they return back. And we see this kind of weird tension where the crowd, Scripture says, are chanting, Saul, the king, he kills thousands of men, but David kills tens of thousands of men. And in that moment, really, there is a seed of jealousy planted in Saul's heart. Now, for the first seven years or so, everything's pretty good, culturally speaking. David ends up marrying uh, Saul's daughter, Right? So they get married. Saul puts David in charge and commander of some armies. But over that period of seven years, he's gaining some steam because David's going out and he's this warrior. He's going out and he's fighting these battles and he's winning and winning by large margins. And while, while David's away, the town is talking. Have you heard this David dude, man? He killed Goliath. He's doing this. He's doing this. And Saul's like sitting on his hands. And so Saul's like, enough. He's jealous. He's like, I'm going to kill David. So word gets out to David through Saul's son and Saul's daughter, David's wife. If you follow that, you know, Jerry Springer show. Okay. And so it gets to him. They're like, I need to flee. So David flees. And I love it. This is like total like movie-esque type stuff in the Old Testament. He like, him and his wife made like a fake body underneath the sheets. Like we, we, we would do it like with pillows, you know, when like you're a teenager, you wanted to sneak around or something. Hopefully you didn't do that, okay? But they took um, goat's hair and they made like a fake body. And they're like, where's David been? We haven't seen David. And his wife's like, he's sick. They're like, perfect. Now's the time to go kill him. So they go in to his house and I can just see him. Like they rip up the sheets and they see it says goat hair. They're like, bum, 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 okay? And they're like, where is he? He's fled. And now he's a fugitive fleeing for his life. Well, Saul still wants to kill him, sends out the troops with him, says, we're going to go find him. David is in the, in the wilderness hiding in caves. Not a very posh style. Now think about this in the waiting, okay? We're going to be in 1 Samuel 24. I'm going to get there. But think about this. While David is waiting, think about what he's thinking. I'm just going to be honest. If I was David, I'm thinking, God, why are you doing this? I'm king. You anointed me king. I'm living in caves on a dirt floor. Someone's chasing me and wants to kill me. That doesn't seem like the lifestyle of the rich and famous. You follow me? It doesn't seem like he's king. And so in this moment, what we're going to see is that as Saul and his army is out and they're going to find David and kill him, David is in hiding for his life. In the midst of this, remember, from the a point that he was anointed with his brothers and all that around to the time he becomes king. It's 17 years. It is a period of waiting. So let's read this together. Chapter uh, 24, we're going to start right at the beginning. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. And then Saul, so he hears, he's like, all right, let's go kill him. Then Saul took 3,000 
chosen men out of Israel, and they went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. Okay, region there. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave. Now get this. I love this. This is like the funniest to me. Okay, I know, middle school humor. The funniest verse, I think, in Scripture. Okay, they stop in front of this cave, and Saul went into the cave to relieve himself. Now that's funny, okay? Like, there's only a couple times. There's another time where a guy's going to the bathroom, and he actually um, is killed, okay? And I think it's in Judges. But this is funny. So David, like, this, listen to how this is happening. David and his men are hiding in a cave. They're living out of this cave. And Saul and his 3,000 men march up, and they stop right in front of the cave because Saul's like, hey, I got to use the little boy's room, okay? And he walks into the cave by himself. You can't make this stuff up. He walks into the cave by himself, not knowing that David and his men are there. So think about this. David's like, oh, yeah, time to kill this dude. He's been chasing after me. You know, I've seen a lot of, like, born movies, taken, whatever, you name it. This is like the perfect scenario to just kill his enemy, right? He's, I mean, Saul's in the cave using the bathroom. He's in a vulnerable state. I don't know if he's using one or two, but I don't care which one. He's in a vulnerable state. Doesn't even know he's there. Listen to what happens. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, so his army says to him, Here is the day of which the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Do whatever you want. If it seems good to you, this is the day. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Man, he's just messing with Saul right now, all right? He goes, Saul doesn't even know, and he cuts off a section. Now get this. Don't miss this. Do not uh, read over this. It says, he said to his men, all right, or I'm sorry, it says, and afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. There was conviction. I honestly believe God was speaking in this moment to him. So what does he do? He said to his men, the Lord forbid me that I should do this thing to my Lord. It's crazy. He calls his enemy his Lord. Not like Lord, Lord, but like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to submit to him. He's king. He's the Lord's anointed. And to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And so Saul rose up and left the cave. And went his way. Now, this is so incredible that in the moment of waiting, I mean, it, it seems like God orchestrated this perfect thing that happened that God just delivered Saul into the hands of David. And now here is David's moment. He's like, I've been waiting forever, I've been waiting for my kingdom. I'm tired of this joker messing with me. I'm going to kill him right here. I'll go out there. I'll do it just like Goliath. Show him I cut off his head. I'll become king. End of story. 
But when he cuts off a little part of his robe just to kind of mess with him, maybe play some mind games, it says his heart was struck. That God spoke to him in that moment. That it wasn't just some emotional, I'm really going with my gut instinct here. It was God speaking to David because God had a plan in that waiting that David trusted. And it was just some reassurance and a reminder of God saying, hey, trust the plan. Because in that moment, David could have taken his life's plan into his own hands and said, I'm killing this guy. But he chose to follow God in this moment. Now, I don't know what your background is. I don't know how much you know where you stand theologically. I'm a firm believer because it's in the Bible that as believers, we have the Holy Spirit that resides in us. And so as comforter and counselor and helper between the Holy Spirit and God's word, it reveals to us who God is, his nature, his plan for our lives, and all those things. I'll talk about that at the end. But that in this moment, God's doing that for David, and he does that for us. Like when we are waiting, and we want to take life into our own hands in the sense of, hey, I'm ready just to make this decision. I'm tired of waiting on God for this. That in those moments, it's really the spirit that lives inside of us that should be convicting us of things that go against the plan. We've all had moments where we're like, I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. If you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. Kids say, you know what? I don't care what you have to say. I'm going to do what I want to do. And so David chose to follow and trust God in this moment. And there's a message in here about revenge. We don't have enough time to go into it, but he chose not to do that. He wanted the outcome to honor God. If there's anything you hear from me this morning, I want you to maybe write this down. You put it in your phone, text it to yourself, whatever. But listen to this. In the waiting, obedience to God is always better than satisfaction of self. In the waiting, obedience to God is always better than satisfaction of self. Now think about this. This is big and small. Now, if you have kids, man, I want... You know, like we've all seen as parents that moment where we're like, who ate the cookies? Someone, someone snuck some cookies. And you go to your kid and they got cookies all over their mouth. They're like, I didn't, I didn't do it. You know what I'm talking about? Like they must think you're a fool. I didn't, I didn't do it. Right? And so the moment for our kids to disobey, they, they choose self-satisfaction over obeying. Now think about this as adults, Okay? And maybe I'm stepping on some toes, and I don't mean this in a judgmental way. I think when you're preparing for marriage, waiting in obedience to God instead of living with your boyfriend or girlfriend is always better than satisfying the desires physically. That's just scripture, okay? There's things that in our lives, we're waiting on something to happen. And it's so much better just to wait and to trust God, to seek his face, instead of the, out of impulsivity, I want to do this, and I want to do it now. We could probably all sit here for hours at end and tell story after story of things where we just blatantly disobeyed God and said, I'm going to do this because I think it's right, and it didn't end up so good, right? We all have stories like that. And, and God, in this moment, I think is teaching us. I mean, I was struck by this. Like, man, it, David could have said, I'm killing this dude. And he could have been justified for it. But yet that wasn't a part of God's plan. 
And instead, David said, you know what? I'm just going to be obedience. Now listen to what happens. It's not going to be on the screen. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along or in the app. I know it's a lot of scripture, but I think it's so good. Such a great narrative. It says this in verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and he went out to the cave. Saul didn't know he was in there. Saul's leaving, turns his back and called out to Saul. And David says, my Lord, the king. He could have said, hey, jerk. Look at this piece of your robe I got. Come on, let's go, man to man. But he calls him Lord and King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and he paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? He's like, I'm not going to do that. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you um, today into my hand, into this cave. And some even told me, my army told me to, to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not put out my hands against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I've not sinned against you, Though you hunt my life to take it, may the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge me against you, and may my hand, um, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge. And let him give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. This is awesome. He, so he comes out out of obedience and begins to call him Lord and King, calls him Father and just bows. Now, I can't help but think that true obedience really here begins and ends with humility. It wasn't about him. He could have come out and said, hey, I'm going to kill you because I'm the next king. I've already been anointed. You're just some fake over here, power-hungry, jealous king, and I'm going to kill you right now. But instead, he goes and he bows before his enemy. Now, think about this. I know we all have people in our lives that have wronged us really bad, and I'm not justifying their actions. And I think we all know deep down inside that this is true, that when we hold on to bitterness and we don't forgive our enemies, who does it eat at more? Us. They could care less. They're going on with life, and then for us, it's just eating us alive. And there's this beauty, because it really is what God did to us through Jesus, of offering forgiveness and not seeking revenge, and starting that with humility and ending it with humility. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people just go to people and say, hey, I forgive you, or hey, I'm sorry, I was wrong in that situation. And people don't know how to respond to that. We don't live in a world that's like that. And so for David to come out of this cave, to bow down to his enemy, and just to say, hey, I don't have anything against you, man. I could have killed you right on the spot, and I didn't. He said, show mercy on me. And in that, man, it's such great humility. And I think that's so true of our relationship with Christ. 
For us to have a healthy relationship with Jesus, it should start and end with humility. Don't you agree? Like, it should start with, I'm a nobody. I don't have what it takes. I can't earn my way into heaven. I can't do anything to just make it to heaven. I need you. And then our entire lives every day should be, I'm a nobody. That's why Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. We should deny ourselves. That's what David did in this moment. And listen to what happens. Here's the outcome, starting in verse 16. It says, as soon as David had finished speaking the words um, to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. That was his response. He cried. Saul cried. He could have said, oh, there you are. Let's do this. But he said, that's you, David. I'm going I'm to cry. And he just weeps. And he said to David, you're more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? He's like, no, he's not going to do that. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know, I know, I know, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you'll not cut off my offspring after me. Don't, don't, don't hunt my family down. Don't destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. And then Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. Man, what a great moment. It really is a glimpse into why he is called a man after God's own heart. He didn't seek revenge. He waited. He waited for God's plan. He waited in this moment. Uh, uh, the Apostle Paul writes this in Romans 12, 2. He says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. Now, to me, those are some three big pillars in the waiting that we should, we should be patient in tribulation. We should be rejoicing in the hope and constant in prayer. Now, I can't tell you how many times I, I haven't, one of those lacks. I'm rejoicing in hope. Okay, God, you're in control. Okay, I'll be patient, and I don't pray. Or you're praying, you have hope, but you, can't, you lack the patience. It's almost like those three are these huge pillars of trusting God's plan in this. And here's the reality of it in closing, is that you think about this. Others see the way that you and I trust God's plan. Others see the way that we trust God's plan. Now, we don't trust God for other people. We trust God for God's sake. But People are watching, do we really trust in the God that we say that we trust in? It's easy, I trust God, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, all right? All right, the devil and the demons and, 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 you know, and Satan's angels, they all believe in Jesus, all right? But do we really trust the God that we believe in? I know for me, we probably have all had moments like this. I became a Christian when I was 14 and when I was 16, my parents got this ugly divorce. 
And it, was, it just rocked my world. And I just remember it being one of those things that people saw, like, not, not every testimony is like this, and not that one's better than another or anything like that. Man, God's at work in all of them. But I went from, like, this punk teenage kid, smoking, cussing, hanging out with the wrong crowd, doing inappropriate things, to God radically changing my life. And in a matter of two years, man, just walking with God and saying, okay, not that I have everything figured out, but I felt like I was super close with God. And my parents get divorced, and I'm in this moment thinking, okay, God, why did you let this happen? I remember my parents saying, aren't you so glad your parents are together? Because all of my friends' parents were getting divorced. And divorce can be an ugly thing. Some of you have been impacted by that. And in that moment, I'm thinking, okay, this is it. Man, I just don't know. I was in a low spot. I didn't trust God. There's no way to get out of this. This is super ugly, and I'm so thankful. I had people around me that were like, man, just trust God. God's going to use this as a part of your story. This is a part of his plan. I know it doesn't make sense and all that kind of stuff, and I didn't see it. And then what I realized is that people were going to see and witness. Did I really trust? And the friends that I was like, hey, God's changed my life. When they're like, why don't you come and smoke with us and do this anymore? God's changed my life. Okay, you know. In that moment, they were going to see and witness. Did I honestly trust the God that I believed in? And it's it's this question of how do I know God's plan? Now, I wish that it was super easy. I wish there was like a scripture that we could flip flip to, and it's like, you want to know God's plan? Do one, two, three. It's not that easy. And I think that's an age-old question that we're looking for. It would be a lot easier if we're honest, if we go home and we pray, and God just like floats down in some celestial cloud. He's like, here, let me tell you what, your, what the plan is for your life. But here's what I've learned. If it's of any kind of benefit, one, in order to know God's plan, we have to know the God of the plan. We have to have a relationship with God. You can't know God's plan without knowing God, right? We have to know God's, uh, who God is before we know his plan. Secondly, we need to know God's word. God's word reveals to us with, along with the Holy Spirit, who he is, his character, his desires, his heart, and it changes our heart. And then, as I mentioned earlier, with the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin, of things that aren't of God. And so, in all of those things, God reveals himself to us because others are watching in this. And who knows? The way that you and I trust God, the way that we're waiting and walking in obedience, people might see that and they say, wow, God's doing something. I've never seen it like that. They're trusting God. They really do believe and trust in who they say they believe and trust in. And I don't know what you're going through this morning. Man, I'm going to tell you, there is no shame in this. Weekly, I'm having conversations, struggling at work, struggling with my finances, struggling in my marriage, losing a loved one, all these different things. They're not easy. And we need to just continue to walk in obedience seek God's face. That's always better than taking and saying, I'm going to do what I want to do and self-satisfy ourselves. Let's pray together. Father, living in obedience to you, it's hard. It's hard at times to follow your ways in a world where we just become so ingrained with, just do it. Whatever you want to do, just do it. You can do it now. 
So we lose sight of being patient. We lose sight of waiting. We lose sight of obedience. And we, we rush things. And when we rush, it falls out of your plan and into some selfish desire that we have. I'm so thankful for this amazing story of seeing David who could have killed Saul right in that moment, but he trusted your plan. He knew your way. He knew your word. Even in the waiting of saying, I mean, it's my time to be king. He says, you know what? Not right now. God, let us have that kind of patience. Let us have that kind of clarity and wisdom to say, I'm going to wait on the Lord. So give us that patience, God, because you are good. Your ways are so much better than us. Even when we don't see it, we know you are working things that are so much better for our future and give us a great hope. And so let us trust in that. No matter what we're going through right now, let us just trust in your plan. And as we sing this song, let it be so much more than just a song and lyrics on the screen. Let it be the prayer of our hearts. You are incredible. You are one worthy of, of trusting. It's in your son's name. Amen. Let's stand and let's close and worship together.